Now, I promise you that this ties into our sermon passage. But I want to think for a few moments about why it was that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John there is saying, Jesus Christ, the one who comes after me, his baptism is far superior to me and to mine. You remember that John's was the voice of the one who was crying in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom is at hand. But Jesus had nothing of which or for which to repent. He did not need to receive John's baptism of repentance. And John tried unsuccessfully to prevent Jesus from receiving baptism from him. So why did Jesus not only allow himself to be baptized, but why did he seek out John's baptism of repentance and insist to John that he be baptized, saying, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why did Jesus do this? Well, allowing that question to hang pregnantly in the air, let me ask you another question that pertains directly to our sermon passage in Colossians. What on earth did Paul mean when he said that something was lacking in Christ? How is this possible that anything could be lacking in Christ? Is Paul saying that there is something insufficient or deficient in Jesus or in his atonement for our sin? Well, the answer to our question about Jesus' baptism will help us to arrive at the answer to the question about what Paul meant about something lacking in Jesus' sufferings. And the short, simple answer is that it boils down to Jesus identifying with us. Jesus identified with sinners by receiving John's baptism of repentance. We have to be careful when we talk about identity and identifying in our current cultural atmosphere, not to view Jesus' identification with us as sinners through trendy identity-colored glasses. I think you know what I mean. As Jesus identified with sinners, it's not the same thing as a person identifying as the opposite sex. But there's a lot of talk in our society about that and, and what it means, and perhaps some here have even bought into the notion that I can identify as someone or something other than who I actually am. Christ added a human nature to his divine nature, but he also added to himself the identity of a sinner. And he did that through his baptism by, the, by John the Baptist, all so that we could become his and he could become ours. And so as we work our way through the sermon, I would ask you to, to hold this thought in front of you. Jesus Christ so identifies with sinners that by faith, our sins and suffering become his sins and suffering, and his righteousness becomes ours. Let me say that one more time. Jesus Christ so identifies with sinners that by faith, our sins and suffering become his sins and suffering, and his righteousness becomes ours. Well, this is just a two-point sermon this morning. The first point, filled to the brim. And the second, you are in Christ. Christ is in you. So again, filled to the brim, that's the first point of the sermon. The second, you are in Christ. 
Christ is in you. So let's look at this first part of the sermon now, filled to the brims. In the previous few verses in Colossians, Paul spoke about the Colossian believers who were once alienated and hostile in mind. They were alienated from God. They were hostile toward God. They hated him, but they've now been reconciled in Christ's body of flesh by his death so that he can present them holy and blameless and above reproach. But then in verse 23, he adds, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, when we were in this passage a couple of weeks back, we noted that that the people we thought were Christians do sometimes walk away from the faith. Oftentimes it's the hardships in life that, that in one sense play a significant role. Someone goes through, through, through great hardship. They suffer in some way. Why did God allow this terrible thing to happen to me? If God is good, then why does He allow suffering, and specifically to me? Well, Paul is saying, in essence, that if you continue in the faith until your dying breath, Jesus will present you holy and blameless before His Father on the day of judgment. But you've got to persevere to the end, oftentimes through great suffering. And now in our passage in verse 24, Paul is going to give to his readers a secret about how to persevere. Rejoice in your sufferings. When you're in the midst of trial and grief and sorrow, rejoice. That's something I think that we could learn from our our, our African-American brothers and sisters, frankly. I think it's something that we can learn. Some of the music that they have, the, the Negro spirituals that you hear about, jazz music, it's, it's about a group of people who have suffered greatly, but in spite of it are able to rejoice. They sing more about victory in Jesus than probably any other people group in our country. And it's precisely because of the hardships that they have suffered in this life. That's what Paul is saying here. Rejoice in your sufferings. He writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul is able to rejoice in his sufferings because of a peculiar outlook that he has, a peculiarly Christian outlook. His suffering for Christ is a participation in Christ's sufferings. His sufferings are Christ's sufferings. Paul says this in various places, one of which is in Philippians 3.10, where he writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, in his death. Peter writes similarly in 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad glad his glory is revealed. When you suffer for Christ... You share his suffering. But as some have rightly asked, what can he mean that in the afflictions Christ endured there is a lack? We have to say what it doesn't mean first, I think. It does not mean that Christ's sufferings and death were in any way insufficient to fully atone for the sins of God's elect. There are certainly some who have interpreted this passage that way. They've they've said you must add your own suffering to Christ's sufferings in order to make atonement for your sins. Paul makes it very clear in this passage and preceding verses that that is not the case. Jesus Christ is the one in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily. He is the one who has made atonement for our sins. And so we don't 
augment or supplement Christ's sufferings with our own in any way that completes or perfects his atoning work. However, he's so closely identified with those for whom he died that our suffering is his suffering. He identified so fully with us in our sinfulness that he received a baptism of repentance from John and went on to be crucified for our sinfulness. And he continues to identify so fully with us that when we suffer, Jesus regards it as he who suffers. This is powerfully illustrated in Paul's own life before his conversion. Paul was so zealous as a Pharisee that he tried to destroy the early church. He tried to stamp it out completely. He wanted to burn it to the ground. Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We know that he looked on approvingly as Stephen was stoned. He was more zealous for the destruction of the church than any one of his contemporaries. But when when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, Jesus asked him in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus regarded every one of those men and women who had been dragged from their homes and thrown into prison and punished and tortured as himself. And Jesus did the most effective thing that he could possibly do to bring it to an end. He converted the most zealous persecutor of the church. He brought him to himself. And he brought that persecution to an end. Why are you persecuting me, he asks Saul. Jesus takes it very personally when his church, his people, are persecuted literally very personally. And this is what it means to be united to Christ, to be in Christ, as Paul so regularly says throughout his writings. When you suffer, Jesus isn't somewhere far off from you. At such a distance that your suffering is unimportant to him. He's right there with you. He's with you in the midst of your suffering. He doesn't have to to, to use some sort of a telescope to look down on you and, and kind of sort of see what's taking place in your life. He's there in the midst of it. He suffers with you because you belong to him. We feel most alone when we suffer, which is why we so appreciate people reaching out to us when they're in the hospital or seriously ill in some way. Jesus is right beside you. In fact, he shares in your sufferings. When I was a child, I can remember getting sick in the middle of the night, having some kind of problem, one thing or another, feeling very ill, and I... I didn't want to get up and wake up my, my mom and, and, and cause her to lose sleep. I was, for whatever reason, I just hated the idea of doing that. Our kids don't seem to have that problem for some reason. <laughs> I haven't trained them well enough, apparently. That was the last thing I wanted to do. And I would lay in bed and be in pain for, in one way or another, waiting for the dawn to come. And finally I'd give in, probably after five minutes, and go get my mom and get her to... Give me something to help out with the pain. Suffering when you're alone is a terrible, terrible thing. It's terrible. It's one of the blessings about being married. One of the many blessings is you don't have to go through it alone. 
It's a blessing to have somebody with you, along beside you, who you know. They've taken this oath. They've, they've made a covenant with you. They're not going to leave you or forsake you at the first sight of trouble. They shouldn't. It's not to say that someone who's not married is somehow deficient or lacking in any way. But it does make it hard to go through life alone. But you're not alone. Even if you don't have a husband or a wife, or if they have passed on, you're not alone. Not if you believe in Christ. He's with you. When you suffer, He suffers. Because you are His, and He is in you. The suffering that Paul is referring to in verse 24 is what he's written about in other places that he endured because of his service as uh, service to Christ as a missionary. We need to keep that in mind. He's speaking about his, his experience as, as a minister, as an apostle, as a missionary throughout the Mediterranean. And so particularly he's speaking of, of suffering as a Christian because of Christ and the persecution that comes to those. He points to that at the end of verses 24 through verse 26, where he says in part, for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister. Paul suffered profoundly because of his faith in Christ and his call as an apostle. He suffered in ways that you and I can't imagine. He had betrayed his fellow Jews and his fellow Pharisees by converting to the very faith he had tried to crush. Being a follower of Jesus in his day, came with severe vocational hazards. But we in our day aren't necessarily out of those woods, are we? We've enjoyed a great measure of peace, but for most Christians, most of the time, that hasn't been the case. Persecution and suffering because of our faith in Jesus Christ is much more the norm than what we as Christians in this land have enjoyed for the last few hundred years. We have no right to expect that we won't have to suffer at some point. But... Paul, as he says, rejoices in his sufferings, and that should be our desire as well. That brings us to the second and the final point of the sermon this morning. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. We've touched on this already, but Paul's suffering came about because he had been called to be a minister of God. He goes on to elaborate in verse 25, saying, According to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now, Paul doesn't say this explicitly here, but his suffering, at least in part, came as a result of making the Word of God fully known. There are things in the Word of God that the world does not want to hear. There are things in the Word of God that Christians don't want to hear. So if you're committed to proclaiming the whole counsel of God, as Paul was, some people aren't going to be happy at least some of the time. Remember... When Jen and I got married 21 years ago, a pastor was a great guy. He was a bit of a hippie, hung out in Asheville, which is very hippie-friendly. He would go to various places, frequent various establishments, and he was well-known in the community. And I remember one person in particular who's not a believer. He came to our wedding. And after the wedding, he said, you know, I really like Jonathan when he comes into my establishment. I really don't like him when he's preaching the word. And what he really didn't like was that, that Jonathan, our, our pastor at the time, that he, he actually preached from Ephesians chapter 5. The responsibilities of husbands to their wives, the responsibilities of wives to their husbands. And this man, who had no regard for God's word, really didn't like it at all. 
Jonathan was a faithful, is a faithful minister of the word. Don't mean to say that in any way he's persecuted in the way that Paul is, but simply to say that God's word is not really fully appreciated the way that it ought to be. Paul's job, his calling, as he says in verse 26, was to make known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but, is, but, but that is now revealed to his saints. And he goes on to say in verse 27 that, uh, that to the saints God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And this mystery to which he refers... Speaking of it now for a couple of verses, it's found at the end of verse 27. This mystery he reveals is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now there are at least a couple of things that make this statement remarkable. First, Paul is speaking to the Gentiles about how God has chosen them to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Greg Beale points out in his commentary that, as Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 2, Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. These are the Gentiles to whom Paul says, you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. As a Pharisee, Paul would have hated the Gentiles, but now he is a missionary who has been called specifically to the Gentiles to reveal to them this great mystery. And that leads us to the second remarkable part of Paul's revelation of what this great mystery is, that Christ is in you, here meaning the Gentiles. Originally, Christianity was viewed by the Romans and the Jews alike as a subset of Judaism. They met in synagogues on the Jewish Sabbath, not on the Jewish Sabbath, but on the Lord's Day, commemorating every week the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But many Jews, not all, not all by any stretch, many became hostile to Christianity, especially the leadership in Judaism. And it wasn't terribly long after Paul became a Christian and an apostle that his focus turned to the Gentile mission. Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews is said by Paul in verse 27 to be in these Gentile Colossians. They, like all believers in Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, are united to Jesus. Christ is in them, and they are in Him. Unfortunately, there are some, even in recent weeks, who have tried to make an analogy between the intimate physical union between a husband and wife and the believer's union with Christ. And if you know, you know, and if you don't, don't try to find out what I'm talking about. But it's a thing, and it's out there, and people are talking about it and trying to make this analogy. Nowhere in Scripture is our union with Christ described in anything like those terms. Instead, the analogy of choice for our union with Christ is that of a vine and its branches. And that comes from John chapter 15. Our union with Christ is most often described in agricultural terms. Not in those intimate relations between a husband and a wife. And it's an apt description of the organic union we have in Christ, this agricultural analogy. It isn't an artificial union we have, a words-only union. We are connected in Christ in such a way that He gives us life. He is the vine, we are the branches, and only by remaining connected to Him will we have life. It's our union with Christ as branches to a vine that results in us producing fruit. 
And Paul is telling these Gentiles that they are united to Christ in this way. They've been grafted into the people of God. And so if they're united to Christ, then they're united to Him in His death, but also in His resurrection. Romans 6 verse 5 says, For in him we have been un- for if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. They, that is the Colossians, you, fellow Gentiles, have died to sin and have been raised unto righteousness. It's true for them, it's true for you and me if we believe in Jesus Christ. We too are Gentiles. And God has chosen to make known among us how great among us are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Beale puts well what the phrase God, uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory means. Thus their, he says, thus their present trust in and union with Christ's resurrection life and Christ in you is what gives them hope to share glory with Christ at the consummation. In other words, slightly dumbed down, our suffering is Christ's and His glory is ours. He takes on our pain and we take on His righteousness. It's a pretty good deal when you take time to consider it. And that's what gives us hope, joy even. When we know that Jesus is with us in our suffering and sorrow, that he shares in it, that our suffering is filling up what is lacking in his afflictions, and that his glory is our glory, we should be overwhelmed with gratitude. You can toil and struggle in what God has called you to do in this life, knowing that you do so with all his energy that he powerfully works within you, as Paul writes in verse 29. Jesus took your sins upon himself on the cross and in exchange he gives you his righteousness and a share in his glory that is to come. And in the meantime, until that glory comes, he walks with you through all of the sufferings and sorrow that this life throws at you. He walks with you. He cares for you. He tends you like a loving shepherd cares for his sheep. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news.